We're in chapter 2 right now, and in a few moments, I'll read chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. If you need a Bible, there's some under the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to grab one and open up to Malachi 2. In uh, 1955, the Los Angeles Police Department put out a request among their officers to come up with a a motto that would summarize who they are as a police force. Uh, Specifically, what they asked for is this. There would be a motto that, quote, in a few words would express some or all of the ideals to which the Los Angeles Police Service is dedicated. So they gathered ideas from all their officers, and the, the winning submission was by an officer named Dorabeck, and he submitted a phrase that you've probably heard. It's been copied by police departments across the country, in fact, around the world. The United Nations includes that in their documentation, providing guidance for what a good police department globally should do. The Red Cross has something similar, and it all comes from this slogan, this simple slogan, again, that you've probably seen, to protect and to serve, to protect and to serve. And they concluded that those two ideals represent the two key things that they're committed to, to protect and to serve. Malachi is addressing, in this section we're at, and from last week, the priests of the Old Testament. If the priests of the Old Testament were to have a simple slogan that represents their two key tasks, their slogan would be to sacrifice and to teach. Those were the two key things they were committed to. They were to sacrifice as they stand between the people and God. They were to offer sacrifices uh, covering the sins of the people, uh, sacrifices of thanksgiving expressing their gratitude to God. They were to sacrifice and they were to teach. They were to teach who God was. They were to teach God's covenant, God's ways. What we saw last week is they failed in that first task of sacrifices. They were offering defiled sacrifices. They were getting bored with worship. What we'll see this week is they failed with their second task as well. This task of teaching. And they failed. They did not honor God with this as well. What we'll do is we'll walk through this passage. We'll see what it meant for the original readers. Like what what was going on? What were these priests doing wrong? We'll walk through that without a ton of application, and then we'll give a good chunk for application at the end. We'll consider, what does this mean for, for all of us? Like, what is their application for all of us? How is there particular application for those who teach, like myself? What does it specifically say to us? And, and then we'll see that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of this, even as we fall short. Let me read this now. Malachi 2, starting in verse 1. And now... This commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Well, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you. That my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. And men should seek instruction from his mouth. 
for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the, by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So we'll look at this in three parts, and what they, what they were doing wrong, and then we'll have a significant chunk for application. And the first part of this we see is this warning that we see in verses 1 to 3. God gives them a stark warning. And it's specifically, again, for the priests, just like the end of chapter 1. It says, this commandment is for you, O priests. This commandment probably refers to what he's already told them. The end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, verse 6 through verse 14, he says, If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? You, you know to honor your human fathers, your human masters. Why are you not showing me that same honor? And then he details the ways they're not doing that. So this commandment is, you must honor me. And they are not. And he says, if you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart, he details these consequences that will come. Notice the language he uses in verse 2 in really pleading with them to take this seriously. He says, if you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart, and then he repeats it again at the end of the verse, you are not taking it to heart. The problem is they have not been honoring God. And now he's saying, honor me. Be convicted, recognize that, but, but take steps to, to honor me. To, to take it to heart, it simply means that. Not just to hear it and then move on, but to act upon it. I, I mean, how many of you have been in a situation where maybe, maybe it's a message you've heard, maybe it's something you read in the Bible, maybe it's somebody else's example, and you feel somewhat convicted, you feel bad, but you don't do anything about it. You don't change. You just keep doing the same thing, and maybe the next day you don't feel quite as bad, the next day not, not, not bad at all. You have not taken it to heart. You've heard it, but not taken it to heart in that moment. And now he's pleading with these priests, and it's God's kindness to do so, to plead with them. Take, take it to heart. And he says, if you do not, it will be a curse upon you. And that language in verse 2 is it's kind of shocking. What comes to mind when you think of a curse? You might think of like voodoo dolls or like witches. You're like, the Bible talks about curses? It's actually a theme that runs through Scripture. And when we were in Galatians chapter 3 in the spring, you might have been here, there's a significant portion there where it talks about the curse. So if you want to know more about that, I encourage you to find that message on our website, Galatians 3, about the curse. But I want to run through some of that here to see when God says this curse, I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already. What in the world is he talking about? Curse, essentially, is a divine judgment. It's a judgment from God, carries the sentence of condemnation. It's a judgment from God, carries a sentence of condemnation. It's really the opposite of blessing. In fact, we often see blessing and cursing set side by side a passage like this, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And I can give you example after example where they're set in contrast. So if you just think of cursing as the opposite of blessing, that'll get you there. And it's a theme that runs throughout Scripture. As the people stood on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy, the, the land that they now have been in for generations by the time Malachi's written, on the edge of the land, God sets before them blessing and cursing. We see this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11, verse 26. 
So see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. It says these are your options, people. You could be blessed or you could be cursed. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, then you will be blessed. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. So those are your two options. And then for the next dozen chapters, he details what are the expectations of them as God's people. And then it culminates in Deuteronomy 27. And I want you to picture this scene. All the people, hundreds of thousands, more than a million, are gathered on two mountainsides right next to each other. I mean, if we have a couple hundred people in here, imagine hundreds of thousands gathered on these mountainsides. The Lord lines them up there and he gives the Levites, the the priests, some things to say. And the people respond back in kind of a statement and response. Deuteronomy 27, 14. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So he says here, if you make an idol, you will be cursed. And resounding hundreds of thousands of voices, they say, Amen. And then he goes through issue after issue. He says, if you dishonor your parents, you'll be cursed. Amen. Uh, you move your neighbor's boundary mark, you'll be cursed. And they'd say, Amen. Uh, misleading a blind person, distorting justice, on and on and on. And then it flips, and it says, on the other hand, if you obey, you will be blessed. And they say, Amen to that as well. Who was leading in this? The Levites. Now it's that same group of people, separated by hundreds of years, but that same office that is targeted, saying, not only are you not teaching people the right way, these words of this covenant, you are leading them away from it. And so he says, you will be cursed. The curse will come upon you. Rather than the overflowing blessings in the fields and the people bring a 10% of, of, of what they grow and they provide for the priest, he says, that will be cursed. You will not have that. You will be cursed. And it gets even more graphic. Look, look at verse 3. And if you miss it the first time, look there again. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces. If I just brought this up without like, you knowing it's in the Bible, you'd be like, that's really vulgar. Why are you saying that? Like, do I need to use synonyms? Like, you, you know what this is talking about? He says, I am so against you. It's like, I want to spread the refuse of these sacrifices, the, the, the waste of these sacrifices that are so unclean they were to take it outside the city. It's like I want to rub it on your faces. Like that would get your attention, wouldn't it? He, it is shocking language the Lord is using to show that the priests have so defiled these offerings, defiled their task, that he's saying this, this offering that is meant to be a, a, something that is a, a purifying element might as well defile you because of what you've done. It is, it is shocking language to get their attention. And even then, that's an act of God's kindness in trying to open their eyes to get them to respond. But then he turns from this shocking warning to now a positive example. Because again, in God's kindness, he's not just saying, hey, do better. He points them to this, this is what I want for you. And the next section of verses, he describes an example for the priests to follow. Beginning in verse 4 and through verse 7, before coming back with a warning to them yet again, he describes 
Levi. He says, my covenant may continue with Levi. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And he was actually referring to is not Levi himself, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, one of the kind of beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel that the priests would come from, from the tribe of Levi, but actually one of his descendants, a man named Phinehas, who is described with just these words. So I think that's who he's talking about. In Numbers chapter 25, the people as a whole got involved in idolatry and in, in worshiping these false gods. And one man in particular stood against them, Phinehas. He says, no, do not do this. And he brought a stop to it. And God says of him in Numbers 25, starting in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. He says, this man, he, he revered me. He respected me when the others did not. And he goes on to use language that's repeated in Malachi. He says, therefore, say, behold, I have given him my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood. And so in Malachi uh, chapter 2, that's why it describes it in verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. Says this, this one stood against these others. This is, this is what a faithful priest is to do, is to, to stand against the idolatry. I gave him a covenant of peace. And then it goes on to say, uh, I gave them to him as an object of reverence, and so he revered me. Or your translation might say, and I think it's more helpful, it's a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Uh, unlike these other priests that are not honoring and not respecting, he says, Phineas appropriately feared me, showed me honor and respect. And so he gave him this role. He says, that's what you're to do. And then notice the way it goes on to describe this role. It says, true instruction was in his mouth. There's a teaching role. Unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He goes on in verse 7 to say, the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. That's this other task. We often think of priests as sacrificing, and they do. But their other task was to teach. And he points to this Phineas as an example of that. Deuteronomy 33 describes, again, this task of teaching that was given to them. Deuteronomy 33, verses 8 to 10. Of Levi, this priestly office, says, They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. That's the sacrificing, and they did offer sacrifices, but they also taught. It says, True instruction. He preserved knowledge. Not only that, he walked with me in peace and uprightness in the middle of verse 6. What a great description of personal godliness. He says, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't we want that to be said of us? He turned people back from sin. He says, he turned many back from iniquity. They, they sought instruction from his mouth. So that's the positive example. He's warning them. He says, you're not being faithful to this role. And now he gives them a positive example. This is what I want. And now he's going to turn back to them. And the priest's failings we see briefly detailed in verses 8 to 9. He says, but as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Their job was to teach and to uphold and to preserve. And instead what they do was they distorted and they led away. And they defiled. They did the opposite of what they were told to do. 
It'd be like if a doctor became the source of sickness in the community or if police officers became the source of crime in the community. We would be abhorred because we say that's the opposite of what you're to do. And they were doing the opposite of what they were to do here. One author puts it this way. The irony of the passage is that God appointed the priests for the purpose of purifying the people and protecting the temple, but they were the source of the pollution. They were to purify, they were to protect, but instead they're the source of the pollution. I asked the question last week that came out of the passage. What would have to be true of a church for God to say of a church what he says to the people there, I would rather have you close the doors. I'd rather have you close the doors than continue doing what you're doing. Part of the answer to that seems to be if a church is so teaching in a way that just leads people away from truth, distorts the truth, it's better to close the doors. And that's what he says of them in chapter 1. And he warns them here. In verse 9 he says, I have made you despised and abased before all the people. In other words, the priests are leading them astray and the people see it and the people despise them for it. I think it's interesting. When denominations, like big movements of churches, drift away over generations from the word, and there's been many that were once solid that drift away, that often comes from the top down, like seminaries and things to the people, and often the ones that are standing against it are the senior saints in the body that have been there for generations, and they're 60, 70, 80 years old, and they're saying, no, this is not what the word teaches, and they're standing against. And it appears to be the sense here, these the, the average person is standing against what the priests are doing and they're despising it because they see it as so harmful. Now, what in the world does this have to do with us? How, how do we take this and, and apply it to us? There are priests in Israel in different contexts than us. I wanted to give significant time there because I think there's three ways. There's ways it applies to all of us there's ways it applies specifically to pastors, elders, teachers, and then ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus. So let me show you these. What does it have to do applying the word to all of us? All Christians approach God directly as priests. This role of priest in the Old Testament to stand between the people and God, in the New Testament we often describe it as the priesthood of all believers. All who are in Christ are described as priests in one sense. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you, Peter here, writing to this dispersed group of believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He says, this is who you are. You're called out, drawn to him, given a priesthood, all of you, but not for your own sake, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is so that it can echo out and you can communicate to others exactly who God is. You no longer have to go to a human priest to approach God. I'm not your priest. You come to God directly through Christ, the, human, uh, the, the God-man, perfect mediator. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But there's no human you have to come through anymore. There's a priesthood of, of all believers. Sacrifices are done. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. Those are no longer done. But you come to God directly and we all, you included, share the responsibility to guard and preserve the truth and pass it on. It's what the priests were to be doing, and they're falling short here. And, and all of us share that responsibility now. 
2 Timothy. And, and, and Paul, in talking to Timothy, so in a way there's a particular responsibility for leaders. And I'll talk about this in a moment, but I think it's all of us. He says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. There's two verbs that are two commands in here. What are they? Retain and guard. What are we to do with the truth, the, the sound words that have been entrusted? We are to retain them. We are to hold them, not distort them. If every generation distorts it as it passes down to the next soon, it's no longer recognizable. We are to retain and we are to guard all of us who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we have this treasure of God's word and we are to retain and to guard it and to pass it along. You, you maybe think, think less of my manhood with this analogy I'm about to use. Uh, I'm reading a book by Jane Austen right now. Um, so get your chuckles out of the way. Um, Jane Austen, she wrote 200 years ago in, in England about kind of the aristocracy and uh, interesting character studies, stuff like that. But the one I'm reading right now, she was describing the wealthy landowner who is not so wealthy now. He's, he's kind of in dire financial straits, but he doesn't want to sell off any of the property because he wants to pass it on whole to the next generation. He, re, he inherited it, the property, the buildings, the land, and he wants to pass it on whole. And he doesn't want to be the one that sells off parts of it and loses parts of it. That's this idea of receiving and passing it along. That's the task of all of us. If you're a parent, it's especially easy to see that task. You receive the faith and you want to pass it on to your kids. But, but for all of us, we want to receive and pass on. Essentially, when we're sharing the gospel, that's what we're doing. I love the way that Robbie Gallaty puts it this way. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. It came to you because it was heading to somebody else. If you heard the gospel and you came to Christ, whether your parents shared the gospel with you, a friend, a Sunday school teacher, it's not merely to remain with you. It's heading to somebody else. It's yours to receive and to pass it along. So all of us share in this role. Colossians 3.16 tells all of us, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you so that you may be able to teach with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. That's a all of us thing. So all of us are to receive the word and pass it on. Of course, there are particular responsibilities for pastors, elders, teachers, and I want to talk about that some here. Pastors and elders do have a responsibility to teach, preserve, and model the faith. The office of priest is not directly mirrored by the office of pastor in the New Testament because there are no more sacrifices. You don't come to God through me. But there is a teaching component that is similar in both. And so it's worth thinking, what does this have to say to pastors, to elders, to those who teach? Real quick on this, we view the New Testament office of pastor or elder as really one office, and it's a plurality. So churches are led not by a single pastor, like I'm up here more often, but I'm not like the singular leader of our church. We're led by a board of elders. Uh, currently there's five of us. We share responsibility, shepherding uh, among the five of us. And we do that because we think the New Testament describes that as it uses pastor and elder interchangeably. We think that it, it describes that as it speaks to multiple elders in singular churches with a plurality there. We also just think it's wise 
so that decision-making and shepherding is spread among many rather than isolated in one. And the majority of qualifications that are given for elder pastor are character qualifications because it is so significant not to lead people astray by example as well. And so they're not character qualities that are unique to elders. Um, They're to be true of all believers, but elders are to model that. But there is one qualification that speaks to teaching. It says of elders, those who are to serve as elder or pastor, Titus 1.9, they're to be those that are holding fast, holding on to, holding firm, retaining, guarding the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that, here's why, he will both be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He is to be able to then teach and to correct. He's been able to guard against false teaching. So that role does overlap from priest to pastor today, this role of teaching. Part of that in particular is this preaching duty on Sunday mornings. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, describes this. He says, I solemnly charge you, I think this is specifically to Timothy in his role as pastor, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. This is all preamble, saying this is how serious this charge is. I'm charging you before God, before Christ, preach the word. Preach the word. So you're ready in season and out of season, but preach the word. That is, that is at the core of my job description. There's other things I can do and, and need to do and are part of pastoring, but if I neglect this, I'm neglecting what is the key part of my job description is to, is to preach the word. Um, so we want to value that. and we want, we want our elders to be sharing that, although it might not be like filling the pulpit here. It might be one-on-one counseling. It might be in small groups, things like that, but we share this responsibility to, to preach, and in that sense, it does overlap here. It also overlaps with the need to be Examples. And 1 Peter 5 says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. This ongoing shepherding task, similar to the Old Testament priest, that way of teaching and directing, exercising oversight. That's kind of a leadership component, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, meaning not to get rich, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. That would be an inappropriate leadership that lords it over, but proving to be examples to the flock. The priests in Malachi's day were poor examples. It says you were leading the people astray. And modern church leaders can do that too. And so there is a challenge given here. As we read this text, I can't help but think of our our board members and, and the challenging words that this would be. And it what it would challenge for me. So it's all of us. It is teachers in particular, but, but I think there's one more application I want to make sure you see. I, I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. We're going to fall short. We're not perfectly going to fulfill this. These priests did horrifically and to great harm for the people. But Jesus perfectly fulfills what they and we left unfulfilled as the true and better priest. He perfectly fulfilled what I fall short of, what you fall short of. It doesn't mean we use that as an excuse not to handle the word carefully and preserve truth and pass it on. We still do that, and yet we recognize that we fail. And what did God tell the priests in Malachi's time would come from their failings, from falling short of this? There will be a curse that comes upon you. 
And that runs from Old Testament to New, this warning of the curse. We looked at it in detail in Galatians 3, and I just want to give you a glimpse of that as we wrap up. In Galatians 3, verse 10, it brings up this curse language. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Meaning, everybody who's trying to get to God by their own works. If I'm just good enough, if I obey well enough, if I preserve the truth well enough, I have a good enough quiet time, I, on and on and on. If I do good enough, anybody who tries to do that is under a curse. Why? Because curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. I cannot, you cannot do all things. We will fall short. And so what have we earned? A curse. And if we were following the example of the Israelites, and if I were listing this off, and I were to, to ask for a response, you would have to say, amen. Because that's what it details for us. But Galatians doesn't end there, and that's where the good news comes in. Because it says Christ, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We've earned a curse. He took our curse. The curse that we earned is the curse he took. And and that's one way of understanding what did he accomplish on the cross? He took our curse. Matthew 27, verse 46 The famous words of Christ as he's hanging on a cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he call that out? Because that is the language of being cursed. He experiences that curse that I've earned, that you've earned, that these priests in Malachi's day have earned, and he took that upon himself. So that, rather than a cursing, you can receive a blessing. And that blessing is to be with God forever to know him, not on your own works, because that has brought about a curse, but on the work of Christ, the perfect priest, the perfect shepherd. After giving instruction to elders, pastors in 1 Peter 5, he describes Jesus as the chief shepherd. He's the one that is without sin. He is the one that is the mediator. As the God-man, he's the mediator between God and man. What is the wrong way to read Malachi? This, this book? be a few kind of wrong ways. One would be to read it and be like, wow, that's an interesting history lesson that those priests were so bad. Close it, set it down. It does nothing for you, does it? be the wrong way to read it. Slightly better is to read it and say, I do some of these same things. Sometimes, God, I don't honor you. Sometimes I don't preserve your word and I want to help me to do better. That is better because you're applying it to you but you're still going to fall short. It's good to think of like leaders and say, like, this is the standard I want to have for those that lead a church, and it's appropriate to do that. But best is to acknowledge those things. See it as a convicting word to yourself. See it as guiding for leaders in a church. Not skip over that, but then to see Jesus perfectly does this. I am so thankful. Let's pray.